Not your keys, not your coins. But what does this really mean? Your Bitcoin keys are literally the keys to the kingdom. They are everything. They are the sole and final arbiter of ownership of all of the Bitcoin in the system. Those keys will blindly and unbiasedly protect the Bitcoins that you have behind them, and they are the impenetrable fortress for all of the Bitcoins behind the keys that you do not have. They are the judge, the jury, and the verdict. If you can grasp and internalize the relationship between you, your keys, and your Bitcoin, then you can safely and confidently use Bitcoin. And that is exactly what we're going to do today. In the Bitcoin Basics series, Episode 3, Bitcoin Keys, Everything You Need to Know. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are diving back into the Basics series. We are doing episode three, and this is all about keys. So in the previous episode, I said that hashes are the bread and butter of the Bitcoin architecture and the basis of proof of work. Well, keys are the bread and butter of how you interact with Bitcoin. They are the thing that everything comes back down to. And as I said in the little intro, if you can just understand and wrap your head around your relationship with your keys and how your keys correspond to your Bitcoin, then honestly, that is the bulk of everything you need. That is the most important thing you need to just safely use Bitcoin. That's it. All the other things are kind of the front-facing tools that you interact with. They're all just kind of like a layer on top of keys. Like it all just amounts to how you're managing whose keys control what. And there's simple analogies to you know make sense of like what an address is and that sort of thing. But you'll understand the relationship of those things if you understand how your keys work. So let's hit our sponsor really quick and then we will jump into it. Speaking of keys, this is why you need a cold card. Your keys are your ownership of Bitcoin and we are about to get into all of the reasons why. So you want them safe. You want them in cold storage. You want them disconnected from computers that are full of malware and security holes and you want them on a cold card. That's its job, to keep them safe from all of the dangers of the internet. And you can get a 9% discount with code BITCOINAUDIBLE and check out their new cold card Q1, which is available for pre-orders. And then the Bitcoin that you're going to want to put on the cold card, you're going to want to get at Swan Bitcoin. I have an automatic savings plan that goes every single week. It automatically buys. And then after, I think it's like two different purchases, it reaches a limit of this is how much I only ever want to have. And after that, I want you to automatically withdraw it to my keys. And they pay the fee for that, the on-chain Bitcoin fee. And that is literally just the beginning of their services. 
They are the best Bitcoin onboarding service in the space. Check them out at swanbitcoin.com slash guide. That is my special link that lets them know I sent you. And then the most magical way to stack sats is by getting it back on everything that you spend in fiat. The Fold debit card is my major driver. It is my day-to-day. It has replaced my boring old bank, normal bank card that never paid me, never gave me any sats. But I have 18,600,000 sats from using the Fold card. I use the premium card and I get more sats back on gift cards that I use for major retailers. I use Amazon cards. I use Uber cards. I use Airbnb cards. Anytime I'm traveling for the conferences, getting two, three, four percent back. 18,600,000 sats. That's about $4,500 right now just for buying the stuff I would have bought anyway. Not too shabby. Check them out. The link will be available in the show notes. And it's guyswan.com slash fold. So, what are public and private keys? So when you're encrypting a message, what you have to do is you have to, you scramble the message and lock it up so that nobody can read it. And then you have to unlock it and you have to have a key to do that. This is true if you want to send a message in the real world or you want to send something securely. You know, you put it, if you want to lock it into a box, the person who receives it needs to have the key to unlock it. And you need to have the lock that specifically opens with their key. Well, Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman in, I think it's like 1974, 76 maybe, I don't know, 1970s, published New Directions in Cryptography in which they unveiled the public-private key scheme, which is essentially the mathematical equivalent of that that relationship. One is a key and one is a lock. The public one is the lock. And now just so you know, this analogy isn't perfect. There are some very specific things and quirks of public and private keys that make the analogy really kind of only the way that you interact with them, you know, because they are math-based, well, you can do some other mathematical tricks that you can't do with a physical lock. So there's limitations to any analogy, right? But I still think, particularly in the way they are used in Bitcoin, unless you're interested in cryptography and all the ins and outs, the best way to think of them is your public key is your lock and your private key is your key. It is your master key. And the magic of this is that when you post your public key, when you post your lock, digital lock, online somewhere, well, then anybody can just take your lock and lock up a message, lock up transaction details, lock up bank account information, or just establishing a connection to a server. You can lock it up so that only that other person can access it. And then suddenly in a completely open network, you can safely operate non-publicly. You can have a private connection with another computer or another person somewhere else because you're using each other's locks in order to transmit the message. Now we will have an episode about transactions Um, transactions, addresses, wallets, all of those good things. But for our purposes today, let's think about receiving Bitcoin 
Like if I'm sending one Bitcoin from me to you, what I am doing is I am taking my key privately. I don't want to make this public anywhere so somebody can see it. But like, so in the example of the cold card is the cold card is doing this action. I am unlocking it and taking my lock off of it and putting your lock on it and then broadcasting it out to the transaction. And then they update that spot in the Bitcoin network, in the, the database of all transactions. And now the Bitcoin have your lock attached to it. And if you want to send it somewhere else, you have to unlock it. So I sent it to, quote unquote, your public key. Now there's some nuances just about how transactions work and stuff that will be fun to kind of get into the nitty gritty details of a little bit later, which will be less about how to think about it in like in relationship to you and more about how it actually works. Like in the, the sense that there are no actual balances on Bitcoin and there aren't really accounts or wallets. Like most of it's just an abstraction, but that's not important for our purposes today. All you need to know is that owning Bitcoin is having your lock on it. And so only your keys can unlock it and send it anywhere. And Bitcoin doesn't care about anything else. This is why we say, not your keys, not your coins. If you aren't holding the key to the Bitcoin on the Bitcoin time chain, then you are just using somebody else's spreadsheet. You own nothing. According to Bitcoin, you are irrelevant, you don't exist, it does not know or care about any claim you think you have, it doesn't know that you exist, nothing matters to Bitcoin except whether or not the Bitcoin have been validly signed for, validly and provably unlocked with the key. So as another example of public-private keys, since we just talked about Noster, or Noster, the land of nostriches, um, recently uh, in another episode, um, uh, the public and private key pairs on Noster, I mean, they're slightly different math so it's not the same thing you can't like just use them in bitcoin but it is the same thing it's functionally the exact same thing and in that instance the public key acts as your username um because i mean and it is still your lock when somebody sends you a direct message or um you publish anything onto noster uh into the land of nostriches the public key acts as both verification that you have the key and when you sign messages with it, it's proof that it is in fact you, but also it's the lock. It, it's used as the lock for other people to send messages to you so that you can natively have an encrypted chat, like a DM over Noster. Well, they're encrypting it with your public key, with your public lock. So in that instance, um, it's not only how people can send you messages, but it's also proof that they're sending the message to you. So it behaves as both kind of a public lock, but also in the normal relationship of an account situation, it behaves like a username, while your private key is obviously your password in that situation. So if I wanted to make my Nostra account public, like good old BTC Gandalf did, I could purposefully or accidentally paste my private key, uh, which is the one that starts in SEC, uh, in pub is the public key. In pub is the one that's free and safe to give to everybody. The in sec is the one that you want to keep very, very safe and you don't want to share it anywhere. Or you will just make 
like BTC Gandalf did, uh, you will make a publicly postable account and anybody can just jump in and sign messages as you and read your DMs and all that good and probably not very good stuff. Pour one out for the Gandalf man. But the private key is the everything. When you have a decentralized system when, where you're not signing up with a particular service, you are generating a set of keys and then you just post them in various places so that people can use them and you can send messages back and forth. There's nobody to call to reset anything because there's no other permissions on your account. That's it. Your key is what's running it. So you lose your key, you lose your account. So in the Noster sense, your private key is your account. It's not necessarily the data, but it is the account itself. And you can take it with you from, it would be, imagine if Facebook and Noster and Instagram, or excuse me, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram were all using the Noster protocol and they just, you know, viewed it different ways or whatever. You could take your private key um, and leave Twitter and go to Facebook with it. And you have the same account with the same quote-unquote ID, same username, so to speak. And thus, if you lose the private key, you don't have the account anymore. And without an authority, this is the only way to do it. The only way to not have a trusted authority is for the key to be the only thing that either identifies you in a situation like Noster or that determines the ownership in a system like Bitcoin. So the lesson here is never, ever share your private key with anyone. And anytime your private key comes up in any situation, know, be very, very skeptical and be very, very serious about what that situation is and why it has to come up. And if that makes any sense at all, and if you have any question in your mind, you just don't do it. Your private key is everything. It is the only thing that can be identified as you. For the same reason you would not share your password to, you would not just be up and it's like, oh, would you like access to my Gmail account? Here is my, here is my password for my email account. You know what? And also here are the login details for my bank account. And here's my credit card number and all of this identifying information. It is 10 times worse for you to share your Bitcoin private key because all of those other situations can actually be redeemed. You can still go to Google and, you know, be like, ah, I screwed up because Google has the master key. You don't have the master key. Google just lets you in. You don't own Jack when you're using a Google service. You don't own anything about the bank, the money in your bank account. The bank is the only thing that can even say money exists in the first place. It's a totally permission system. You don't own anything in the digital world. What you are given are these little tokens, these passwords, these usernames, the payment details, um, and identifying information that lets you access it. And if the company or the service or the bank or the government decides that you should not be able to access it, they simply revoke that access because somebody else has the master key. In the case of Bitcoin, the master key is all there is. And you own the master key, which means there is nothing any of those other companies can do to take it away from you. The bank can't stop your money. The bank doesn't even begin to own your money unless you give them your keys. So in Bitcoin, what do your keys look like? 
they will come in the form almost universally there. I mean, you can, it's all just formatting or encoding like we talked about in the last episode. Um, but you're almost always going to see your key if you ever interact with your key at all as a set of 12 or 24 random words. Now understand this is just a 256 bit key. It's just 256 ones and zeros but you are simply seeing it in a human readable format just like we talked about in as far as encoding goes we talked about morse code morse code isn't a language unto itself it's just a way to transmit english letters letters and words of a common language that you are already speaking so morse code is technically transmitting english when you use it it's simply trying to it's simply compacting that data into a bunch of beeps and spaces. So in the same way that at the other end, you're just going to have basically a bunch of short, long, short, long, short, long, short, long, but you're going to read it as, hey, I'm going to the store. Would you like me to pick you up anything? Because it's, you know, 1910 and that's what you send over a telegraph. Well, your 24 word seed and the ones and zeros of your private key have the same relationship. Your words, the 24 words are just a way to display them so that it's easy for you to make sense out of them when you look at them. So when you see your keys, you'll see them as like maybe 24 words and it'll be like pumpkin, bulk, alert, explain, layer, radio, etc., etc. But technically you could quote unquote encode this however you want it. This could just be a big long string of emojis. Smiley face, happy, cringe, face palm. I mean, nobody would do that and don't do that, but it would be 100% possible. In fact, there have actually been transactions broadcasted because there's something uh, Andreas Antonopoulos used to say um, in his talks was that you can broadcast, like if somebody tried to make it so that you quote unquote weren't allowed to broadcast Bitcoin transactions, you could just put it into a, uh, encode it into a bunch of emojis in a 280 character tweet and broadcast it out. Somebody can copy it, and as long as they know the encoding, turn it back into a transaction and broadcast it anywhere in the world. So good luck censoring that. But I'm pretty sure people did it just for, you know, because they're nerds and it's fun. Now, what does your seed represent? What is a mathematical key? It's just a really big number. Literally, it is just a really, really big random number. Now, that probably doesn't sound like it's secure. And there is no possible way for either myself or you to have any even slight measure of a scope of what the size of this number truly is. So when I say big number, you think, you know, a million, trillion, like just and anything above that anything above i think it's like the average human can only hold like seven things in their head like if you if you say look at seven things or there are seven things you can actually like line them up in your head and see all seven of them at once but like once you get to like 10 you have to you can only see like little pieces of it and then you kind of have to change your frame of reference in your brain because you can't hold it all at once that's we're talking about single digits there and we start talking about what does 20 people look like? And what does 50 people look like? You can't just like picture 50 people in your head. You have to picture just like kind of a room and how big of a size you might think. Okay, well, this is filled with people now. 
And we start talking about a hundred, a thousand, a million. A million might as well just be like a Google huge. Like it, like it just, it's completely meaningless. A million is so out of the scope of the ability to imagine anything. And then when you start talking about millions, millions, like the number's so big. I mean, anything above that, like what's the difference between a million and a trillion? I mean, we've been completely desensitized to the word trillion as if it's just totally normal. There's absolutely no frame of reference. Like a trillion is an insane number. And in comparison to the size of a SHA-256 bit key, it might as well not exist. It would be invisible if they were standing next to each other. Which even that is a ridiculous understatement. So just for fun. Just for fun, let's kind of have a thought experiment on try, trying to wrap our heads around the teeny tiniest possible piece of how big this is. So imagine you're at the beach and you look down at your feet and you're looking at the sand and it's the tiny, fine, almost powder-like white sand that blows in the wind and it makes just this layer of sand that's just like moving through the air. It's basically like a powder. You can pick it up in your hand and the individual pieces are so small that you can't even hold it in your hand. It's just falling through your fingers like a fluid. That's how tiny these grains of sand are. In fact, I don't know if you've ever tried, if you've ever like, tried to put one and just look at a single grain of sand on your finger. Now, you are standing on that beach. Look around and think about the sheer insanity of the number of grains of sand that are in your immediate area. Then start walking up the beach. It's just trillions upon trillions upon quadrillions, just more and more grains of sand. Go a mile up the beach. Go up the entire coast of the state, of the entire continent, around every single island up along the continent. Take every single last beach on planet Earth and all of those grains of sand, which include many, many places that human feet have literally never stood. Now go to the deserts. Literal oceans of sand as far as the eye can see. And add that on top of it. Every single grain of sand in an ocean of sand. Of every single desert on planet Earth. So there's an article that I read that breaks down how you would even begin to do the math to calculate how many grains of sand there are in all of that. But the rough answer was that it would be 4.6 times 10 to the 23rd grains of sand. That is 460 sextillion. Now think about all that sand. Think about all those grains of sand. That is roughly comparable to the number of stars in the known universe. And each one of these is a vast, astronomically huge, no pun intended, collection of mass and matter that make our entire planet, not just like all the beaches on our planet, but the whole freaking planet, look like a grain of sand in comparison to it. Now hold on to that and let's think about the one grain of sand. How many atoms are in that grain of sand? Now, based on the molar weight, um, this obviously varies a lot because sand can be giant or tiny. But let's just say for the sake of our discussion 
we're looking at around four quadrillion atoms in every single grain of sand. The number of possible numbers of variations of what you can get when you randomly create a SHA-256 private key is comparable to the number of atoms in the entire known universe. It would be as if you reached somewhere in the cosmos entirely at random and picked out a single atom. That is what it is like to randomly generate a SHA-256 private key. And the only way for anyone to unlock anything sent to you with that key is to either have it, to know exactly in the universe where that is, or to guess which one. And understand the inability, the infeasibility of someone guessing it isn't even a computational limit. It's not even a, oh, we don't have a computer that's fast enough. It's a thermodynamic limit. It's physically infeasible. Like physics prevents the guessing of this number. There's a meme that went around at some point, and it used to be a really uh, favorite of mine about how like you could build a Dyson sphere around our sun and consume all the energy of the sun with a perfect computer that had the absolute lowest possible energy expenditure theoretically capable of switching a bit from zero to one to to essentially count to test all of the potential private keys and that if you consumed our entire sun and solar system and everything like nuclear detonated every single atom to get the most possible energy out of every bit of it you could not even count to the to the end of the SHA-256 number space before the universe burned out and everything ceased to exist. Yet, you can display that huge freaking number with just 24 words. The only reason you own any Bitcoin at any time on the Bitcoin system is because you have this number and nobody else does. That is it. It is the ultimate and singular authority when it comes to Bitcoin ownership. Do you have the key or don't you? There is no government can override it. There are no pleas of help. There's no help desk for resetting anything. There are no special circumstances. If you have this number, if you have your 24 words, you can sign for your Bitcoin and they are totally under your control. If you do not have this number, if you have lost those 24 words or the device that you made them on or whatever, or worse yet, someone else has the number and they just tell you that they're going to give it to you, you don't own anything. According to the Bitcoin system, you are not relevant. You have some other account of some other kind with a person who has Bitcoin keys and owns Bitcoin. And what you are holding, quote unquote, is just a promise, which means that you are not sovereign, you do not own anything, you do not have anything, you've just traded a fiat bank promise with a fiat Bitcoin exchange promise. But they are both the exact same thing. So you keep your seed words safe as if they are the actual Bitcoin. 
which is why people say you can memorize 24 words and have your Bitcoin wherever you are in the world, because you can literally, it is the secret that is its ownership, which means that you can take it anywhere in the world and that you can truly sovereignly, like you don't even need paper or physical things in the physical world other than your body and your mind intact in order to retain ownership of your Bitcoin. And I want you to pause and appreciate how unbelievably revolutionary that is. Think about any stories you know of history and how much different things would be if you could just exit a country with all of your monetary value in your brain. Compare it to anything else in your life. What, do you, what can you possibly own that someone else cannot take from you? Think of any financial tool or retirement or account or paycheck, anything. Do you actually own any of it? Like who holds the keys? And when you start trying to compare it to things, you realize just how insane Bitcoin is. And it's crazy that you, you know, when I was first getting into it, it's interesting too, because like you realize how little responsibility, or at least I did, I realized how little responsibility I actually had over things like real control over things in my life and how much I absolved myself of that responsibility. I pushed it off onto someone else and I was just like, Gmail will let me set up, change the password. Apple will do this for me. Like I was constantly, I was constantly at someone else's mercy. And I remember because it was a very sobering experience for me the first day that I realized I owned my Bitcoin that I had these 24 words and there was literally nobody who could possibly guess what those 24 words was like. I had just created them. I had just sent the Bitcoin to them and I had this one piece of paper and this was all of the access to this Bitcoin in the world. There was no other institution, person, server, authority, political bureaucracy, nothing that could overrule that according to Bitcoin. And that was a weird feeling. It's a scary responsibility that like, this is totally in my control. Like I could just accidentally drop this you know, piece of paper into the mud so that it's illegible and holy crap, it's all just gone. And then when I compared that to all of these other things in my life, like, you know, my retirement account at Fidelity, like IRA that I had through the business and uh, through my job at the time and like the money in the bank, the, my house and the deed to it. You start looking at all of these other things in your life that you think you own. And it's like, what, what couldn't be taken from me? And in fact, what couldn't be taken from me even without me having to be present or part of the situation? It changes your frame of reference. And you're like, I don't own anything. Like my entire life is subject to someone else's approval or opinion or permission. You know, this is also why you'll probably hear or have heard, you know, Bitcoin maximalists say like real estate is a shitcoin and stocks, securities and equity are a shitcoin. Well, it's simply because when you start weighing, you do, you turn, you turn the thing upside down and you start looking at your life in relation to the things that you genuinely have control over by yourself, just like you do with your Bitcoin keys. And you're like, none of that stuff is really mine. 
None of that, like, that's a scam. <laughs> there, somebody else is holding that stock. Somebody else is, at the stock exchange, the government could just easily just decide that this doesn't belong to me anymore. And this is one of the, when you wrap your head around that, I think this is one of the big reasons why Bitcoin does change how you relate to things in your life. And like it's reoriented my entire life to realize what I did and do not, I do and do not have control over and that I orient to get as much sovereignty as possible in my local immediate life as I can. And you realize just how many things that you just should not be able to depend on, especially, especially in the world today when the political stability is non-existent like just the whole world is politically and institutionally volatile as all hell you think you have the value you own that ira that pension you think you own a paycheck the money in your account your debit card your social media account like we don't own any of that stuff all of that stuff it literally might not be there when you come to need it and that's not to say that you should get rid of all of it, you know, when the bank owns, you know, I have a mortgage on my house or the government comes or the bank comes and confiscates my car or shuts down and censors my social media because I have the wrong opinion about something. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have a social media account, I never buy a car or I don't live in a house. I mean, same with like an IRA or a pension or something. Like, I 100% believe that when the, when the dollar collapse comes, they're probably going to nationalize all of that. They'll do it in the name of, quote, saving it, but it will be done so that they can suck all the value out of it and print money um, and, you know, fix some tiny little blip on their balance sheets at your cost. That doesn't mean don't have an IRA. It means consider how you are thinking about it. Reframe how much you are depending on it, and if you find you are depending on it too much, switch to an alternative. Find ways to mitigate that dependence because you got to realize you don't own it. You don't hold the keys to any of it. But you do in Bitcoin, as long as you can keep those 24 words safe. Now, there's a little bit of a tangent, but... <laughs> but I want to talk about how you lock Bitcoin to someone else's key. Like, what is, what is the relationship? Like, what's the public key? What is the lock when it comes to Bitcoin? Well, essentially, that's what an address is. You know, when you generate a Bitcoin address and you're like, oh, I need to send Bitcoin to somebody and they send you this address that starts with like 1K876 blah, 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 or they BC153XX2 blah, this is like a single-use lock. So think about it in the context of when, you know, somebody at like a school or a big institution or an office building, you can give each one of the people who has each of their offices their own key and their own lock, right? So they can get in and out of their office and nobody else on the hallway can get in and out of their office. They each have separate locks. However, there's the janitor that comes around or the manager of the building and they have the master key and it unlocks every single lock. Well, this is basically the relationship that your public key has to the addresses 
that you receive Bitcoin at. Your public key is like your master lock, but there are actually reasons why you wouldn't want to share it with other people because there's, there's a privacy issue in the fact that because you generate addresses from it, anybody who had your, pub, your master lock, your public key on Bitcoin, um, they couldn't take your coins or anything, but they could check to see which addresses and which Bitcoin balances belong to you. Because that's the thing that you compare when you have your, your lock, your public key, that's what you use to check against all of the other things on the Bitcoin time chain, all the transactions, to see if somebody sent you a transaction. You are the one who can identify that this particular address does in fact belong to your keys. So it's not an ownership concern, but it is a privacy concern. So we abstract them away by creating these sub-locks, these single-use locks that you send to other people, which other people can still just, you know, you, you can receive 100 transactions, a million transactions to a single Bitcoin address. But again, that's not very good privacy practice because obviously it's visible to everyone that it's all the same address and therefore it all belongs to the same person. And when it's free to create derivatives sub you know locks from your master and you have essentially an a limitless number of these it makes more sense to actually treat them like invoices so you can think like the bitcoin address that you receive money to that you you receive payment to you can think of it like an account because it kind of works like an account like when i'm sending you money in the banking system i'm going to send it to your uh, your bank account number and your routing number, or I'm going to send it to your debit card. But since everything on Bitcoin is public, like imagine if you were walking around with your credit or debit card and everything that you swiped at every single store, there wasn't any explicit indication as to what location this was or who you were doing business with. But it was just publicly posted every single time. And you could just look and be like, okay, well, whoever owns this credit card made six transactions today like it was all just in, on this big public ledger well you don't really want to let people know like look you could infer a lot of information from that so it's good practice to just make sublocks to just keep making addresses for every single thing in fact it's sato even satoshi like very at the very very beginning of this said there's no reason to reuse addresses like just generate a new address for every single thing that you do and so when you're receiving Bitcoin, it does make sense to think of an address, your Bitcoin address, as an account number in the fact that somebody can send money to it. But because of the way the lock itself works, it makes more sense to use it as if it's like an invoice number and you use a different one for every single transaction or person that you transact with. So I spent a whole episode just talking about this because I think Drilling this relationship into your head and understanding this is the most important thing for understanding what you need to keep safe. And, and the three main pieces of this puzzle, like the, the private key, your seed phrase, your 12 words, your 24 words, whatever, however you are storing it, it is your master key. It is the keys to the kingdom, it unlocks everything, and it is the sole thing that says that you have ownership or control over your Bitcoin whatsoever. 
If you are not the one who has the keys, someone else does. Now, your public key is like your master lock, but anybody who has your master lock can know all of the sublocks, all of the, the derivative single-use locks that we refer to as Bitcoin addresses, all of them that are related to your keys. So if you don't want to broadcast that out and associate all of those together, well, that is why we work with Bitcoin addresses that are sub-locks. They are derived from your master lock and they are single-use. And when you create those locks, there's no indication that they are related to each other unless you have your master lock, unless somebody can see that. And the act of someone sending you Bitcoin is them going to the Bitcoin network and proving, unlocking Bitcoin that was previously sent to their address and then relocking it with your address. The process is actually referred to as signing. You're signing with your keys to prove that the address is in fact yours. And then it takes the Bitcoin out of that address and attaches it, locks it back up with your address. And the only person that can validly sign, that can unlock it, that can prove that they have those keys is the person who has those keys, who knows those 24 words. So if you remember, if you can internalize that you send and receive Bitcoin from addresses, to and from addresses, and that your private key, your 24-word seed, is your ownership, and the fact that it is a secret is why you own it, well, then you can use Bitcoin. And we will get into wallets and actually like directly practical things. Like I will talk about the wallets that I use, and I know this will date the episodes at some point. So probably what I'm going to do um, as I kind of go through wallets and services and these other things is I'll make a list in my notes. I'll make a list in the show notes. Um, and as I essentially change the wallets that I find myself commonly using or new wallets come out that I think are really great options, I'll just update the list. Um, and I will reference in the episode, the basics episode four, um, uh, to just check the list for any newly updated you know, wallets or lightning options and all of this stuff. Because we'll get into the specifics of, you know, Bitcoin wallets and lightning wallets, hardware wallets, uh, mobile wallets, like all of these different things. Like what are these different things? What do they mean? Um, and which ones are actually yours? And one thing to keep in mind, um, I think I said this in one of the previous episodes, but Google searches are not good. Search engines are not really good for finding the best things. You find the advertised things. And very, very often, it's nothing but custodial stuff. It's nothing but crypto exchanges. It's just a mess. Search engines are good if you know exactly what you're looking for and you're just trying to find its location. But if you're looking for advice, if you're looking for someone to recommend something or the different options that you have available, you get nothing but ads. Search engines are terrible at that. So that's why I hope to have a good list for you guys in Basics Episode 4 that you can kind of lean on for just the things that I trust, the things that I use. 
Um, and that doesn't mean I, and I test out and play around with a lot of stuff and I try to do my due diligence. But that's no guarantee that there's not going to be a bug or a problem. In fact, very often I'm using beta software very recklessly. Um, but I will at least tell you which ones I know where I am holding the keys and which ones that I use. And I know roughly the degrees of privacy that I have and then which ones I know to just stay away from. So basics number four will be when we get into really practical and directly relevant tools and things that you will actually use and interact with. But you're going to hear the word keys, you're going to hear about seeds, and you're going to hear about hashes and all of these things. So it, these will be very, very good groundwork that we have covered. If you can remember and internalize the things that we've covered in the first three episodes, I think it's going to make a whole lot more sense as we go through these different tools and things and actually use them. You're going to know what you're looking at. And that, I think, is the purpose of all of this, right? Is to look at the things in Bitcoin, to look at the tools that you're using and just kind of know the main pieces of them. And if we do that, it's a whole lot easier to be confident and you're way, way less likely to make mistakes. So hopefully this episode on your Bitcoin keys, your private key, your public key, and, uh, and a little bit on your addresses sheds a little bit of light on why we say so viciously, not your keys, not your coins. So with that, a thank you to our amazing sponsors and to everybody who supports the show. And I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, everybody... Take it easy, guys. Most people think it takes a long time to change. It doesn't. Change is immediate, instantaneous. It may take a long time to decide to change, but change happens in a heartbeat. Andy Andrews, The Noticer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>